Hello, readers. Braylon Edwards is a former wide receiver for the Michigan Wolverines and in the NFL with the Browns, Jets, 49ers, and Seahawks. During his time in Ann Arbor, he became the only wideout in Big Ten history to surpass 1,000 receiving yards in three straight years while also collecting All-American honors and the Bolitnikoff Award as a senior. His NFL career included one Pro Bowl appearance in 2007 when he finished the season with 80 catches and 1,289 yards. And he's written a book about his life. It's called Doing It My Way, My Outspoken Life as a Michigan Wolverine, NFL Receiver, and Beyond. Braylon, thank you for the time. How's it going today, man? I'm doing extremely well. So uh, let's start off with asking uh, a very basic question, Braylon. What was your goal in writing this book? You know, what's kind of funny is Triumph came to me um, in 2016 and wanted to do the book. They thought it was a good idea. They had done some books with uh, former Michigan players and, you know, had a good market. But I wasn't in the mood to do a book. I didn't really see a point at it at that time. And, you know, it wasn't a lot of money in it. So, you know, I was looking at it from all the wrong reasons. And so I chose the pass. Well, from 2016 when they offered to 2018 when we reconnected, and I talked to so many people, just like family, friends, that, and it wasn't even about a book. It was just talking about, you know, career, Michigan, what's next, and, uh, you know, uh, things that happen, be it good or bad. And everybody kept coming up with the consensus. Man, you got a great story. You got a great story. You need to write a book. You need to do a book. And so when they came back in 2018, I was very happy. I was very excited because, you know, I thought that my family, my inner soaker, and even people I didn't know were right. And so then it became not about the money, more so just getting a story out there. And you definitely delve into the behind-the-scenes aspect of uh, what was going on with you throughout your life, and I certainly do want to get into that. But where did your love for football really begin? Uh, well, my dad played professionally, played at Michigan, played for the Oilers, played for the Lions. So you know, from birth in the crib, I mean, I had – football wallpaper you know everything football stuffed animals in the in the crib and first thing i ever picked up was a football so you know hanging around dad and my mom was very very uh accepting and pushing of it you know she was very happy that my i had that connection that bound my father and so you know she was all for it and you know the rest is kind of history is there an easy way for you to describe your complex relationship with your dad stan uh yeah we have a great relationship it's just not we don't need to talk every day if it makes you, you know, if that makes sense. You know, we don't have the, 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 the mushy, you know, relationship. We got to talk every day. You know, we go to dinner you know, two times a week, et cetera, et cetera. But when we talk, it's like we never, you know, skip the beat. He can call me for anything, you know, and I'll you know, talk back to him or vice versa anytime and talk back to him. And it, it's developed into that over the years. Uh, it's just, it just wasn't your typical relationship, but at the end of the day, nothing about my life is typical. So I guess it fits in the place, but <laughs> always supporting, always there. I was never out of the picture, uh, not a disappearing father in any sort, always moved kind of close to where I was. So he could be there for, you know, to be the father so I could see you know, my father in his presence. So, uh, always, always a good father, just a, you know, not your typical relationship. Now, you admit in the book that you started out playing football to earn your dad's approval, but you also say at some point you did start to play it for yourself. When did you start playing for it uh, yourself and why? Uh, I started playing for myself probably my, senior year in high, eh, probably my senior year in high school. And I think what happened is I started playing because my dad played and, 
you know, I wanted to get that pat on the back that every every boy dreams about from his father. And, you know, good job and good luck and good congratulations. But my senior year, when I transferred from Martin Luther King High School in Detroit to Bishop Gallagher High School, which is in Harper Woods, which is still very close to Detroit, uh, I started getting good. I started to learn how to play football from Coach George Haiti. Rest in peace. He taught me defense. He taught me offense. He taught me the mindset behind football. He taught me how to like, – he just taught me how to approach the game different. And once I started to learn the game from, you know, the in and out as opposed to just what I see on TV or trying to emulate Randy Moss or Jerry Rice and, you know, just running and catching the ball, I actually learned the game. I actually began to respect the game. And then that's when, okay, this is something I actually can do. This is something that – you know, can be good for me as well as, I mean, uh, as opposed to just something to make my father happy. So I probably my senior year when George said, hey, he taught me the real game of football. Mentioning high school and uh, football and learning, I also was uh, interested to learn that you found a love for Shakespeare in high school. Which was your favorite Shakespeare story and why? I, so when, um, when I transferred to Mr. Gallagher, <laughs> it's very funny. It's how small schools work. My English teacher, who taught me literature and who I fell in love with Shakespeare with, was also my DN coach. Wow. <laughs> so, wow. So, yeah. So, so those are how, you know, the, uh, the, the small schools work, per se. Uh, there's a, a lot of great works by Shakespeare. Uh, you know, Othello, Hamlet, uh, Romeo and Juliet, uh, Midsummer's Night Dream. But I like Romeo and Juliet, not because it's the most talked about, most scripted, I just like the story as it relates to like Mercutio's role in it all. You know, Mercutio's like the bad guy that tries to keep, he's like the bad guy that keeps Romeo away from all the, the BS and he tries to be there for him. He tries to be there. And in the end, Romeo still ends up getting Mercutio killed. So it's kind of like, hmm. you know, even when you try, try your hardest to be there for somebody, you know, it still may not always work, but at the end of the day, just keep trying. You know, if you care about somebody, then, always be there for that person. Love that analysis. Now, when did Michigan start to recruit you? When did they finally offer? And considering playing there was a lifelong dream of yours, in part because your dad played there, how quickly did you commit? Uh, Those are actually real good questions. So Michigan started the soft recruiting my sophomore year, uh, but it wasn't anything serious. I hadn't done anything on the football field at King to really warrant serious, uh, you know, um, that's the word I'm looking for. Uh, it'll come back to me. But I didn't do anything worth asking real questions about should we bring this guy up here. Uh, going into my senior year when I transferred to Gallagher, I broke my knee my sophomore year in May. So right before the summer going to my junior year, had surgery, rehabbed it, came back that junior year, and I played hurt the whole year. Like I couldn't run like I wanted to. I couldn't plant. Uh, and it just wasn't a good year, like mentally, physically, et cetera. So I was able to rehab again in the off season, and then I was able to get stronger and stronger. And then um, when I transferred to Gallagher, I started working with the quarterback over there, uh, Sam Marnese, who ended up getting hurt before <laughs> the season started. But I just started working hard and hard and hard. And if you read in the book, there was an incident that happened with my father and I where we kind of – were apart for a little while, mm-hmm. so I don't want to. I don't want. I don't want to tell too much. And let people read it. <laughs> there was an incident from January, my junior year, until Michigan camp, 
uh, the summer going into my senior year, where I was just basically on my work on my own and grinding to prove that I belonged, grinding to prove that I was worthy of you know sports or worthy of football, worthy of the last name. And so, in doing so, I finally get back with my dad and we go up to the Michigan camp, uh, which would have been June of 2000. And I perform lights out. Now, here you are. I'm a guy that's not even on the radar. But you have all these five-star guys that were there. And Michigan's recruiting. And LSU and Florida and USC. And the list goes up. And I just outperformed all of them. I'm, I'm actually looking at my MVP of the camp trophy as we speak. Hmm. But I think that's when Michigan got serious. And so after that camp, I went to Michigan State the next week and did the same thing in Michigan State's camp. And Michigan State offered me that day at camp. And after that, I thought I was going to Michigan State. Fast forward, October of 2000, I think it was right after the Michigan-Wisconsin game, Michigan won a, pulled a, a close one out. If I remember the score, I want to say it was either 14-7 or 21-14. It was a great game. I think Dave Terrell ended up catching two touchdowns, one for the game winner. And Lloyd came in the locker room. He was just ecstatic. You know, after you talk to a player, and we seen the, well, they seen the big because I wasn't on the team yet. He came into the the uh, recruiting lounge area, and he walked in. And he said, "Hey, you want to come to Michigan?" I was like, uh, "Yes." <laughs> and, well, there's your offer. <laughs> That's very so, cool. Let's just say I caught I caught Lloyd in a good moment. I guess <laughs> there were uh, there were and a I few. Yes on the spot. Yeah, there were a few of those. Now, you just mentioned him, but your your coach at Michigan, Lloyd Carr, kind of have a reputation as a crotchety old guy. You admit in the book that you guys' personalities clash from time to time. In retrospect, were you glad that he was your college coach, or do you wish it had been somebody else? No, I, I, I love Lloyd. And I think in retrospect is the perfect way to look at it because as I got older, I was able to really appreciate the coach that Lloyd Carr was and how he's able to deal with certain personalities. Like, I understand in order to be a great coach, even though they say you know, every player on the team is the same, it's not the case. Like as a coach, you got to know a kid's background. You got to know what they can potentially stand, what they could potentially handle, what they can't handle. You know, some parents, some kids come in they're a little more fragile. Some kids are a little stronger. You know, some kids, some kids need tough love. You know, some kids don't bank, don't beat up on them too much. And I look back and he was able to pull that out of me. You know, he was able to be stern. And tough with me, and you know, be be out outspoken in the media about me if he didn't see fit to see, you know, if he didn't see something he liked. And I think at every turn I responded, like every turn I responded. And looking back, I don't think I could have played for another coach. I'm glad I didn't have the chance to play for another coach. Lloyd is Lloyd was was and will always be my guy. Now, your junior year at Michigan, you finally got to wear number one, something that you had been asking for since your freshman year. Why was that so important to you, and what did it mean to finally make that happen? All, I, all my father talked about when I was growing up was Anthony Carter. Anthony Carter this, Anthony Carter that, Anthony Carter, the, the great All-American, three-time All-American wide receiver at Michigan who wore number one. I think they're two years apart. So my dad got there at 77. Anthony AC got there in 79. But he was just amazing. You know, you're talking about a coach in Bo Schembechler, who's from that Woody Hayes perspective where all we're going to do is run the ball. You know, now you get this guy up there, this little skinny kid, and they're lighting it up with Wangler. They're throwing the ball down the field. You look at the Indiana game, the 
And Lee Corso still talks about to this day. Mm-hmm. He has played a game on the post route. You know, AC finishing fourth in the Heisman, fifth in the Heisman, sixth or third in the Heisman. I think he had something like for every third time he touched the ball, it was a touchdown. Wow. Like some like ri- ri- some ridiculous stat like that. Like, I'm t- But this is like his whole – it might have been like his whole career. It's like his whole career. Like every third time he touched the ball, it touched down. Damn. Yeah, exactly. So he's the guy, and one became the number. He's in you know a hundred some years. You guys had a lot more number ones than him, but he was the first guy where this is the number. Like this is the player that's gonna make things happen. And then you follow suit with you know uh, Derek Alexander, Greg Murphy, Tyrone Butterfield, then Dave Terrell. Who went, and you look at this, it's like Anthony Cardo's number one draft pick to the USFL. You look at Dave Terrell, he's the number one draft pick to Chicago Bears. You look at uh, David Alexander, Derek Alexander, he's the number one draft pick to the Cleveland Browns, who ironically, I end up being number one draft pick to the Cleveland Browns. Yep. So that number one is that jersey that guys could depend on that player. The coaches could go to that player. They're always going to come through in the big time, in the clutch for their team, and I think that's what number one represents. So that's what I want to be. Not only were you a great player at Michigan, you were also a really good recruiting host at that school, showing a lot of big-name guys around who ended up wearing the maize and blue. Steve Breston, Jason Avant, uh, Jake Long, and Lamar Woodley, to name a few. Even Lindale White says you were his best recruiting host, even though he was destined for USC the whole time. But there was one recruit who left a sour taste in your mouth, the guy who you ended up being teammates with with the New York Jets, Antonio Cromartie. What happened between you and him on his official visit to Michigan? So one thing I respect. So Crow comes up there, and Crow is, I think he's Crofans. He's a he's a couple people's cousin that have Florida ties. Like Crofanzo Thorpe played wide out. He's his cousin. Uh, yeah, another famous cousin. So he's a Florida kid, and I feel bad for him too because usually Michigan has these recruiting weekends. <laughs> See, I'm from Detroit, so the cold weather doesn't bother me. Plus, I was already wanting to go to Michigan anyway. But when they have the big recruiting weekend, it's typically that second week in December, some like right before we go to the bowl game, wherever it is that year, it's typically that second week <laughs> in December. Well, he missed that one. So he had to come in on a special recruiting weekend by himself, which was uh, early January, like right after the bowl game. It was kind of like in the middle of the bowl game. And it was cold as I don't know what. There was snow <laughs> on the ground. I know he he had like this little windbreaker jacket that we had given him at Michigan to wear while he was up there because it was cold. But anyway, he was um, he had watched the the Outback game, Outback Bowl. We played Florida, and I had four catches for 110 yards, and I broke a couple long ones, but uh, I got caught. And so he says, you know, I saw you, I saw you play. You're all right. You know, I saw a couple couple catches I would have scored on for sure. I was like, oh, is that right? So you think you're better than me? He said, I know I'm better than you. I was like, all right. I'll tell you like this. If you don't come here and if you decide to play DB, I'll see you in the future. He was like, definitely. And lo and behold, we definitely saw each other in the future a couple times and then end up becoming teammates. So it was talking about coming full circle, man. It was, it was amazing. Who got the best of one another on the field when you guys met up later on? Um, when I played them, I played against him played once with the uh with the Jets when we beat them in the playoffs 
in 09, well, technically 2010 playoff, we beat them. I got the best of him. And then we didn't, I didn't play against him again. So okay. I only played against him once. And he, then we became teammates. But we went tick for tack in practice. Like, it was it was tough, man. You know, you got to go against him. Then you come back and you got to go against Revis. It was like we definitely were ready on game day to go against any secondary in the league after practicing against Cromartie and, um, and Grievous all week. Going up against the best uh, helps you become the best, too. Now, before we move to your pro career, Braylon, I did want to ask about your last game as a collegiate because we are broadcasting this interview here in Austin, Texas. It was a 2004 Rose Bowl between Texas and Michigan. It was a game for the ages. Even though the Longhorns won on a last-second field goal in that game, you played your ass off in that one. I still fondly remember just how well you and Steve Breston were, uh, just how good both you guys were in that game. What is your lasting memory from that game? Uh, a couple things. One, um, before the game on Saturday, uh, we you know you go to the stadium. That kind of like last that last walkthrough, that last you know you get to feel coaches do this thing where we go to the stadium that everybody kind of take ten minutes to go off on your own and do your own thing. You know, pray if you pray, sit in the stands. You know, throw the ball up in the air and catch it. Whatever you need to do to get your mind right before the next time you came in there. And I remember my positions coach, Eric Campbell, who's now wide receivers coach, assistant offensive coordinator at uh, Bowling Green. Mm. Um, he took me to the side of the Rose Bowl wall where they have every MVP of the game etched into the, into the stone on the side of the wall. So you go back, I think they, I think they start in the 40s or 50s, but they have everybody etched on the wall. So you look at Charles White's up there, Marcus Allen's up there, Keyshawn Johnson is up. So you're looking at a lot of uh, a lot of USC guys, right? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Tyrone Wheatley's up there. So you just look at this, and this is where I wanted to be ultimately. Uh, fell short, but it was a good experience because I met Mac Brown, uh, Cedric Benson. May God rest his soul. May God rest his soul. Uh, Cedric Benson, uh, Vince Young. And uh, Derek, Derek uh, Johnson, we all met at the uh, Playboy All-American in the preseason, and then we all met again at the ESPN Awards in uh, Orlando. So I had actually become friends with those guys. Mm. So, so then it sucked again because now I'm friends with them, so we talked a lot. So, you know, I had to hear uh, uh, for a long time <laughs> that, we didn't, that we didn't get it done. But, man, those are both skates. Uh, there's some great guys on that team. Ended up playing with a couple of them. Uh, but great game. One for the ages. Dusty Mangum. Wow. One, one, one for the ages, man. Yeah. And, uh, boy, yeah, that is uh, still a classic game all these years later. And you ended up meeting up with Cedric Benson again a couple months later at the NFL draft. You and Ced were two of the most highly touted dudes heading into the 2005 NFL draft. You actually had hoped to go to Miami at number two and felt like they were going to select you. They were dropping all sorts of hints that that was going to happen, but you end up getting selected by Cleveland at three. You admit in the book that in the moment you wished that you had insisted in the months leading up to the draft that Cleveland not take you. Do you still feel that way four and a half uh, after the four and a half years that you spent there? That's always that's always a tough question. Like try to go back and do something over. It's a, it's a question that you must ask. It's always a tough one to answer because part of you has the mindset of, well, I really wanted to go to Miami. I knew I knew the wide receivers coach was down there. I had some players that played on the team. I had been down there, worked out with those guys down there. I had worked out with Gus Ferrat. 
who was with the Dolphins all off season. So it was like everything was 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 going to set up and lead there. You know, you still had uh, Rod was a quarterback on our team. You had Chad Pennington, the quarterback on that team. Ricky Williams was still on that team. So you had a lot of moving parts. Like one of my big brothers was Chris Chambers, mm. uh, wide receiver from Wisconsin. Yep. That, you know, had a couple of Pro Bowl years with uh, the Dolphins. He's like my big brother. So I was working. That's who I was working out with. And that's how I met everybody on the team. Ron Bellamy, who was wide out at Michigan when I was there, he actually hosted me. He was on the team as well. So it's kind of shaping up to be this move. And if not this one, then I'd like to go forward to Chicago because I'm from Detroit. They play Detroit twice a year. It's only a four-hour drive, and it's a it's a huge venue. I mean, a, a huge sports town and tradition. Mm-hmm. I didn't talk to Cleveland not one time except for on pro day. We talked for a little bit on pro day, uh, and a little bit at the at the combine. But nothing. I never had a because when you go to the combine, you have official meetings and unofficial meetings. So like official, obviously they schedule you. They tell you. Hey, Braylon, you have a meeting at 7:55 with unofficials. Are if you're just in that train station, any coach can grab you. It just from any team just grab you and sit you down. Didn't talk to him then, so mm. I'm thinking Nick Saban and the whole staff flew up from um, from Miami. Not to mention Nick Saban was the the preseason uh, Playboy All American coach that my senior year. So I met Nick. Talked to Nick, had a good rapport with Nick, had a good rapport with Bobby Williams as he got fired and went back under Nick. So I know this whole staff. I know a lot of the players. And my agent lives down there. So this is the move. And then draft day happens. And it was all a farce. Hmm. It was all so Miami could try to get to four. Now that I, I know how the business works, I know that now. Like They try to do this so they can still – they were trying to steal Detroit's Two first round draft picks, they were, or uh, the Redskins, two first round draft picks. So, but hey, uh, the rest is history, man. I think everything happened for a reason. I had some good times in Cleveland, had the one Pro Bowl year, was able to get traded to the Jets, make two AFC championship games. And, you know, it's not often that you could say you played on the second or third best team of a team's history. <laughs> You know, in the Jets story history, you got one Super Bowl win, and then we got two AFC losses. So, uh, I'll take it. No doubt about that. And uh, you mentioned the 2007 Pro Bowl year. Considering the numbers you put up and also receiving that Pro Bowl nod, was that your favorite year as a pro? Oddly enough, it wasn't. Okay. Oddly enough, it, I, I mean, 16 touchdowns was, don't get me wrong, it was a lot of celebrating. But we didn't make the playoffs, and like at the end of the year, it kind of was, it was cool for the individual sense. Like the individual sense, it was very rewarding. Pro Bowl, you know, commercials, uh, you re-up contracts. I think I, my Nike contract was up that year, so it was like perfect timing. Um, that's all fun. That's all well and good. But that was all me by myself having that fun, having that, you know, experience. My second year in New York, where we – uh, we went to the playoffs. I think we were 11 and 5. Should have won the championship. I mean, uh, we should have won our division and we should have got the Super Bowl. But it's neither here nor there. Everyone had success that year. That year I had 910 yards, seven touchdowns. Santonio had 900 yards, seven touchdowns. Uh, Ladanian had 
1,200 yards or 1,100 yards, something close. Mark had his best year as a pro. You know, we were the team to beat. I think at one point we were 9-1 and one going in Monday night playing against the uh, Patriots, which we got obliterated. But we were 9-1. and one. We were a hard knock life. Uh, everyone got a piece of that, that pie. Like, everyone got some peace because it was a team effort. Like, we were winning games as a team, and we were – 11, you know, even though it was only one win in Cleveland, but we didn't get to go to the playoffs. Meanwhile, in New York, one more win, we get to the playoffs, and we get deep in the playoffs, and at the end of the game, you know, if we get a stop on on fourth down, we get the ball back with a chance to go to the uh, Super Bowl. So you're talking about a game of inches. So I like that season a lot better because everybody has success, and we made the playoffs, and it was a – not saying that it wasn't in Cleveland, but the energy is different in New York City when you're winning versus Cleveland. And that's just kind of cheating, but I think that's also what it comes down to. That makes that energy in New York is like no other. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And uh, unfortunately, your time with the Jets ended fairly abruptly, which was a disappointment you write about in the book. And I highly encourage everybody to go out and by doing it my way, my outspoken life as a Michigan Wolverine, NFL receiver, and beyond by Braylon Edwards. From the Jets, you at first it looked like you were going to go to the Arizona Cardinals, but you ended up with San Francisco. How was your time with the 49ers, a sobering example of the NFL as a business? That's one thing I do talk about in the book, and that, that year is kind of my fault, but just to answer your question first, uh it, it was cool. Trent Baalke as a GM was okay. Uh, Jim as a, as a coach was he's a good coach. He was a little he was a little intense and a little uh, what I'm looking for demanding like extra time, et cetera, et cetera. But he you know it was it was going well until I got injured. You know it was going well. I had come in there, had kind of started doing my thing right away. Moved into the starting position. By the time uh, preseason came around, I was starting. Um, started the opening game against Seattle, which we won, and then started the second game against Dallas and tore my meniscus on the first third down of the game. I caught a third down for about 20 yards and then tore my meniscus. So then it just became a battle of getting back on the field. For me, it was this is the first time I didn't have a deal, per se, for the next year. This is the first time that – you know, I really, I'm really like, like uh, fighting. I'm really pr- uh, pressuring myself so that I could put myself in a good position to secure a long-term deal the following season from the 49ers. So I was very nervous, and so during the rehab process, trying to hurry up and get back, the doctor tells Jim that the process should be, you know, five weeks because you're just doing a little scope, cleaning out the tire a little bit, go shave it down said he's still young, said, you know, so it should be a, or young-ish in football terms, but said it shouldn't shouldn't be that long of a process, five months. Well, then he didn't respond like the doctor told Coach Harbaugh that it should. So now it's like I'm getting the doctors at the the one point telling me I'm okay to play or I should be okay to play. Meanwhile, my knee is telling me something completely different. Like my knee is telling me something completely different. But then Harbaugh is also listening to the doctor because, you know, I, I didn't go get my PhD. You know, I didn't graduate I didn't graduate Stanford Medical, so hmm. you know, what do I know? So now I'm like getting rushed by Jim. Then I'm also 
trying to get the doctor to realize that my knee isn't feeling as it. So I rushed back. Long story short, knee never felt right. And I got cut the day after Christmas. We played, I think we played Seattle again. And the game after Seattle was the day after Christmas. They called me in that next that next day and cut me. So, yeah, we got cut the day after Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. And a, and a happy new year. <laughs> happy new year as well. Happy new year. Now, uh, you're going to fast forward to after your NFL career. Your final season was that following year. You played part of the year in Seattle and got to finish up with the New York Jets, which is pretty cool. But you ended up working for the Big Ten Network in 2017 after the first college football weekend in 2018, which included Michigan losing to Notre Dame, you sent out a tweet that was critical of the team and a few specific players. The network suspended and eventually let you go because of it. Do you still find it as a little bit of a head-scratcher that something so seemingly harmless was treated like you committed a serious crime? It's not really a head-scratcher in the sense that Michigan, University of Michigan has put up the most money in terms of procuring a Big Ten network when we first started as a as a uh, as a network, like Big Ten, Michigan put the most money and was a front runner, you know, like the front face, even though Ohio State was uh, football wise. But you got to think about it as, as a whole school, sports wise, whole school. Also, you know, Jim Harbaugh is he's the outspoken guy for the Big Ten. The Big Ten, like as Jim Harbaugh is the face of the Big Ten, even though Urban Meyer has the wins, like big, like Jim Harbaugh is he's Jordan. He's larger than life personality. He's very vocal. You know, Urban Meyer is very quiet, chill, relaxed, whatever. But with that being said, um, I still was a little taken back because at the end of the day, I am an analyst. So I went a little critical, but I did go. I do bleed maize and blue, very passionate about that school. So I was, but yeah, at the end of the day, you have to do what you have to do. You have to make decisions that are best for your brand. And if I wasn't that decision, then I'm I'm very understanding of that. I just wish they would have talked to me in a better light. Like, I wish they would have brought me into Chicago. That's where the Big Ten Network is located. I wish they just would have brought me in and said, hey, uh, you know, you can't do that, what you did. You can't say that, what you did. You can't, especially you can't admit that this is what's going on, why you did that. You know, we, we admire you, we respect you, we, uh, you know, we want to work together just right out at this time. Or you bring me in probationary period, you know, break down the do's and don'ts of, of social media as it relates to being an analyst, kind of go from there, put me on a probationary period, come back, I apologize, and we move forward. But one of those, you know, and I was felt like I was respected and admired in that profession or in that 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 building or in their company, but it was a. I got a text for I got a call, and then a text from, uh, exec that hired me, and said, "Hey, we can't have you come in this week." So this would have been that Monday, after the Notre Dame game. So we can't have you come in this uh, Thursday. We have a meeting on Wednesday to see how we're going to you know move forward, and then you know we'll reach out and let you know. And then it was like nothing. Like so, from that from that text and that convo, so now there was nothing. So, you know, I think they could have handled a little better on the end, but I think at the end of the day, it goes back to I stood to the Godfather. Now, one of the silver seen it? the movie Godfather. Oh yeah, definitely seen the movie Godfather. 
Remember what Vito Corleone said? He said, never let anybody outside the family know what you're thinking. So when we were up there at that alumni event, I just stayed, stayed neutral or stayed from a, a analyst point of view, like, you know, Michigan needs to get this first down or Michigan's getting beat up a little bit on the offensive line. Like, keep it like an analyst point of view. And then when I'm not on the tweet, I could talk to all the alums and however we were talking, whatever we were doing, we could do that. Never take business and information outside the family. That's that's an interesting way to think about it, that uh, you separate the passion from certain mediums where you know that the, it can get you in a little bit more trouble. Right. Uh, uh, la- last thing, right. Braylon, before I let you go, and thank you so much for the time today. The silver lining about that story is since then, you've discovered a pretty remarkable purpose in life. What are you up to these days? So here in Michigan, the opioid crisis is is, is major, man. And, uh, you get all these especially like the smaller towns up here in Michigan, but they just the opiates, the opioids. Uh, and it started off as pills a while back, but then the, uh, the state put a heavy mandation on, on practic- uh, practitioners and licensed physicians to really be accountable for their, their scripts. So that got better. But then the other side of it, and they, they start creating and doping and doing other things and other ways to go around that. And so we just go around, and we uh, talk all throughout the state. Myself, my mentor, SMG, Sports Management Agency. We go and we work with Southeastern Catholic Charities of Detroit. And what we do is we go to addiction centers, speak about addiction. We talk to their their clients, as some places call them, their addicts, as other places call them. Uh, we speak to them and we just get them some hope, positivity. You know, give them somebody to talk to, to kick it with. I kind of share my stories. So that, you know, because you got to bridge the gap for, you know, you got guys that are, you know, low, low end, low income, maybe no income, maybe almost homeless, et cetera. Like, how do they relate to you? You find the story. I tell them about my DUI, tell them about playing football in the league, tell them, you know, painkillers, et cetera. So once you kind of bridge that gap, now they listen to you. Now they talk to you on an even bigger scale. We work with middle schools, high schools, et cetera. Because the problem is, it's the lo- it's the younger kids that are doing it. Like kids are doing it at a young young age, man. So because of social media, because it's very visible to them on TV, because entertainers are glorifying it, if you will. So you're listening to this. You're a young kid, and you guys are experimenting, or it's around you, parents, family, friends. You see it, peer pressure, or you know, family. So they're getting into it. So we're trying to just preach that message to them that it's kind of like the old, like the D.A.R.E. The D.A.R.E. program was like, man, drugs isn't cool, et cetera. But then I'm also hitting them with some some real stories to let them know the flip side of what they didn't tell you in that song or what they didn't show you on that TV show. You know what I'm saying? So it's uh, it's been it's been rewarding in the sense that you're working for the betterment of, of people, you know, humanity. So... Yeah, I'm not trying to sound like Mother Teresa, but I'm trying to do my part. You know what? You are doing your part. Thank you very much for your piece in that public service. And also thank you for this book. Braylon Edwards is my guest. The book is Doing It My Way, My Outspoken Life as a Michigan Wolverine, NFL Receiver, and Beyond. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Braylon, really enjoyed the conversation today, man. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks a lot. I had a great time.